What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today we are following up on the topic of not just school, but, you know, social issues, right? And my guest today is Aninja Kundu, all right? And he wrote a an amazing book called The Power of Student Agency. So yesterday, uh, we had the episode with Dan Golden talking about the college admission system and how rigged it is to help the privileged and the wealthy and all that, right? And I loved Aninja's book because it it helps us, whether you're a parent, a teacher, or just somebody who cares about the future generations, uh, figure out how we can help these kids. So a lot of you have heard or read um, the book Grit from Angela Duckworth. And yeah, like it's for those, you know, to just like simplify it, right? Uh, she argues that there's a certain type of personality like grit, like of people who push through, you know, uh, adverse situations and all these other things, right? Well, in this book, in The Power of Student Agency, Anindya builds off of that. And he has been, you know, working on this and researching this for quite some time. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this book. And he just had twins. So congratulations to him, uh, new papa. So, uh, yeah, so his book is phenomenal. I'm glad that, you know, we were able to link up after everything settled down with the newborns. And yeah, here is my conversation with Anindya Kundu about his awesome book, The Power of Student Agency. So make sure after this is done, after you see how awesome this conversation is, make sure you go check him out, follow him over on Twitter, grab a copy of the book. All right. Give it to other people too. It's an important book, okay? And don't forget, make sure you're following me over on social media too, at The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. I have so much cool stuff coming. So many, so many authors are coming up and I'm just blown away. And if you follow me on Instagram and Twitter, you get to see see who's coming on and what I'm reading and I like talking to all of you. But anyways, anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Aninya Kundu. Hello, Aninja. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm glad we were able to link up after everything chilled out with the with the newborns. And yeah, I'm so glad that we get to talk about your awesome book, The Power of Student Agency. Uh, I, I was waiting for this book for months because I'm an audio listener. And you were like, yeah, it's coming out in a few months. So the second it, it came out, I got it, binged it and all that. So anyways, the first question that I always ask is, yeah, like where this book come from? What inspired you to sit down and write this book about the power of student agency. Thanks for having me, Chris. What inspired me to write The Power of Student Agency was honestly the fact that it was my dissertation. So that was a research project that you know I um, conducted over about three years while being a PhD student at NYU. And there was a strong motivation to want to study um, what can help students with social and economic disadvantages to succeed. You know, having studied um, achievement or education and inequality for many years, 
um, it was very obvious that a lot of the literature and a lot of the scholarship that exists on on students and students from difficult backgrounds uh, comes from a deficit perspective almost. Like, what are these students lacking? What are the competencies that they will need um, to be caught up and potentially, you know, find some kind of a stable job, um, make their way out of poverty situations? It was all kind of... Um, implicitly thinking of students as uh, having flaws, if you will, or not necessarily seeing them at their potential. And having met so many bright young people and um, worked with inspiring scholars like Angela Duckworth and Pedro Nogueira, um, we know that students are capable of great things. And I wanted to be able to find a way to operationalize that. And so that's what brought me to want to study agency, because agency takes social uh, context into consideration um, it's context specific per each individual, and it's all about possibility. And so I wanted to study how are students making it out of adverse circumstances? What are the personal, social, and institutional factors that help them do so? And that was my motivation. Um, you know, I, I've even worked at a juvenile detention center in Chicago where the kids were extremely bright. They just had not opportunities that other kids in Chicago from the north and west sides did. Um, the south uh, side of Chicago, um, completely depleted of resources. And so uh, school wasn't a viable option for a lot of these kids. And so, you know, that's what really brought me to this work is thinking that we should reframe our notions of achievement to think of all students at potential and wanting to, you know, hold up and champion a sample of participants who really make that case and tell their stories. Um, that's what brought me to this work. And then the, the book is uh, much more, um, you know, work that is intended for all audiences, whereas the dissertation was a little more academic. And I hope I was able to accomplish that and share these stories in a way that um, everyday people would enjoy. And so that's also who the book is for. Every, anyone who's in, interested in uh, potential of, of young people or the potential of themselves, uh, more specifically, probably educators, mentors, uh, school district leaders, because I talk a lot about systems, um, principals, educational leaders, and people like parents who, who are also invested in the, in the lives of young people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so it's so great that people like you become interested in this topic and recognize, you know, the potential of some of these young people, because like sometimes I get a little uh, cynical and bummed out. Right. Like I, I just uh, had a conversation with Dan Golden and we talk about, you know, the college system being rigged and, you know, and then there's a, another book called Pedigree about what happens after school, after you go to college and how that's like another system that's all crazy. And when I read your book, it's like, OK, cool here's some solutions because whenever I see this stuff I'm like all right is there anything that these kids could do but I sit back and I I know it's possible we've we've heard these stories so I'm so glad that someone like yourself is sitting down researching this stuff and then taking the time to write a book and educate the rest of us on what we could do to help young people who are coming from different backgrounds uh, you know and don't have that you know that advantage that some other kids do so one of the first things I want to you know talk to you about is you know obviously you reference uh, Angela Duckworth's book grid and it's this bestseller and a lot of people have heard about it you know it's become kind of this you know term that a lot of people use and in her book, you know, she argues that there's this thing called grit that people are either born with or they could develop it and it will help them succeed. So one of the core aspects of your book is that 
Angela Duckworth's theory of grit isn't necessarily wrong, but it's missing this aspect of agency. And I don't know if it's just me uh, or what, but uh, it'd be awesome if you could kind of break down like what are the you know key similarities uh, or differences between agency and grit. Uh, that would be very helpful for myself as well as anybody else who might be wondering what the difference is. I think at this point, pretty much everyone has heard of the term grit. Um, Angela Duckworth, the preeminent psychologist who developed the concept, is you know kind of a household name. She's on a Freakonomics podcast, uh, has one of the most viral TED Talks, um, MacArthur Genius Award winner, um, just to name a few amongst her best-selling book, Grit. And she's a very close mentor of mine, too, and, and all of that is very, very uh, deserved. Um, what happens with grit, um, which is defined as, the, as passion and perseverance for long-term goals, Grit is a very complex concept about how people uh, have these long-term goals and then decide to put in the day-in, day-out hard work uh, aligned to being able to follow that like North Star. Um, what has happened, though, is that this concept can get co-opted by the general populace in saying that hard work is what it really takes for students to succeed. Um, of course, hard work and effort are key to success, but what is also very important are the social circumstances, uh, support systems, relationships, and experiences that students um, have available to them. And that context um, sometimes gets lost in the grit narrative, which is a psychological concept. So as a sociologist, I introduced the concept of agency as a counterpart to grit. Agency is one of the sociology disciplines founding uh, concepts because sociologists question whether humans have the level of agency or individual free will um, to overcome the power of, of social structures, you know, like neighborhood demographics, uh, race relations, um, things like uh, laws and customs. And it's a dichotomy, it's a structure agency balance that's how we navigate life but i think thinking about agency because the structures are inherently a part of that conversation is a necessary component to grit so that we can think about both the individual and social level factors it takes kids to succeed and in doing so um you know, applying agency and grit in education, we really can think about students uh, as being more at potential. Because if we're only thinking about grit and thinking about it in terms of effort, we're gonna say that student A achieved because they displayed more grit and maybe overlook the fact that student B's parents were fighting in the morning or they didn't have an adequate breakfast or they have to help take care of their siblings before they get to school. All of those social level factors that really affect the way students learn and students are motivated and students' abilities, those have to be a part of the conversation so that we can think about what are the support systems we should be helping students um, by providing them with. And so uh, I, I think that's the balance that we're looking for. All right. All right. That now that makes sense. All right. <laughs> that makes total sense. It's actually something that I, I think about a lot. And I, I, I don't even know how to talk about it pu publicly without tooting my own horn. But, you know, uh, there's things like just, you know, me getting sober and stuff like that. I try to, you know, reverse engineer that and say, okay, what did, what did I do that I could teach others and all these other things, right? And something I've learned in my nine years sober and working with others and, and stuff like is, you know, there's, there's certain things that might not just be inherently there with some people so it's like how do we do that and that's the agency i think that you're talking about because like for example i have i have this insane like 
work ethic, right? I, I, I enjoy working. I get crazy if I'm not working, right? And it's like, I'm. that's just something that's part of me. I don't know if that was nature or nurture, you know? Uh, my mom has a PhD. My dad, you know, worked his butt off, you know, to, uh, raising me and stuff like that. But, you know, I look at that and I, it's like, I can't fault someone else for not having that same work ethic because I'm not even sure where it came from. But what it, what it sounds like with agency, you know, there's these different social factors. Like, for example, like like you talked about, you know, what uh, is going on in the kid's house? Like, you know, is it something going on, you know, with their parents? Uh, do they even have food to eat, you know, to be, you know, have the energy to go to school and learn and all these other things. Like, there's so many other things to get a kid to the place of having that agency and yeah and that now now everything's kind of coming together and you do a, a great job uh you know going through all the different things that we you know as communities or teachers or mentors or whatever can do to help out our young people so one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about is because your your book, it brings a ton of awareness to these social and cultural factors that play a major role in how young people perform in school as well as how they progress through the rest of life. And, you know, in the United States, we're sold on this belief that we're set up in this meritocracy. But... You explain in your book how that's not exactly the case. So one of the, what are some of the most common factors that can hold a child back from being successful compared to, you know, the advantages that some other kids are just, you know, born with based on, you know, where they're from or who their family is and all that kind of stuff. You know, I too have um, kind of believed in this idea of meritocracy probably up until I graduated from college thinking that, you know, the amount of effort, talent, and drive that people and young people display is really what's going to get them ahead in life. And I still do believe in that, but I believe that so much is kind of, um, I don't want to say predetermined, but so much is influenced by demography, uh, you know, where a child is born, the zip code, uh, which will affect the schools they go to, their health care options, um, their parents' job opportunities. That matters so much in education. Um, you know, as a sociologist of education, uh, one grim reality of our school system being based in a capitalist society is that simply by nature of where children are born, um, that has a huge hand in the kinds of schools they will go to, the kinds of teachers they get to um, experience learning from, the technology that they'll get to come into contact with, the kinds of after-school programming that they're going to have, um, the kinds of college um, access uh, programming that they're going to receive. All of those things are better in wealthier neighborhoods where the tax brackets are higher and public schools are better. Um, in fact, in lower-income neighborhoods, sometimes a college career uh, readiness scores and uh, graduation rates are, are really bad. Um, and so that's somehow, um, you know, a part of the story that we can gloss over when we're just thinking about meritocracy and the best and brightest um, being, um, you know, the backbone of American society. Um, and, and, you know, education is a zero-sum game. The more we help educate um, students who come from lower income neighborhoods, the better we will be off um, socially. That will just help our economy and will help our social fabric. Um, and so that's why it's, it's very important that we as a, as a group of people consistently problematize this idea of meritocracy because it just is not the case. That's not really happening here. 
Yeah, so uh, a quick little side rant. Uh, <laughs> uh, I first, you know, discovered this, you know, when I, uh, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers. But anyways, anyways, I'm not a huge fan of Bill Gates, but I do appreciate that he's very vocal about how so many things lined up perfectly for him to become who he is today, right? Like, he was around when computers were becoming a thing. And, you know, out of the, the few schools that had computers or computer labs, his school had it right and all these things that came together so kids who didn't have access to that they they had absolutely no chance of being a bill gates right and i i think that's something that we don't take into consideration and we lie to ourselves and say oh yeah it's a meritocracy and you know you could just work and stuff like that but there's certain access to things uh, when i was talking with dan golden we talked about how you know how, how's a kid you know in uh you know the detroit you know uh urban areas of detroit gonna ever get like uh, a water polo scholarship or or a horseback riding scholarship or sailing you know like here in las vegas in the you know uh the schools out here is anybody going to be a sailor, right? Are they going to join the sailing team at Harvard? No, they can't because we're in a freaking desert, right? But it's just these little things where we have to acknowledge that some people don't have those same things. But as as you mentioned too, just even, you know, where where kids live, like housing prices are often depicted by how good a school is in that area, right? So better schools are in higher income areas. And, you know, we have to see how all these things kind of work together. And that's something, one of the reasons I love learning and reading about so many different books is because I see how all these pieces are feeding into each other. And I still, I still barely have a clue of what's going on. And I don't know, I'm hoping that, you know, books like yours help educate people and say, okay, you know, that, that kid's not just, you know, lazy uh they, they might not even have had access and then these kids they don't even know what they don't know about when it comes to you know opportunities or skills that they could be developing and all that but anyways i i can i can go crazy and talk about that kind of stuff all day but um but yeah, like one of the one of the things that's great about your book and the work that you do is that you you argue that there are solutions for some of this stuff. And, you know, as a father, I try to educate my son as much as possible about how the world works so he can manage his expectations and navigate life just a little bit better, right? And my concern is that if he learns um, you know, of all this, these challenges or potential challenges ahead or, you know, meritocracy not being what we hope it, it is, right? I, I'm concerned that he'll be like, oh, you know, why, you know, why should I even try, right? And I, I'm curious through, through your, you know, experience and research and all of this, you know, how do we teach our children that, yes, some people are born with an advantage. They're born on third base, right? But there's, here's what you can do to take a little bit of control and becomes successful in school and life and you know all these other aspects. I think what's Im incredibly important is that we're actually having those conversations with young people in the first place that we're not glossing over the realities of life. So it's inviting young people who are incredibly astute and perceptive to understand that yes, there is not necessarily a level playing field in this country, um, but that doesn't mean that you can't uh, succeed and thrive. And I think having those conversations conversations are incredibly important so that students can develop the critical thinking needed to figure out where are the different levers and supports that they can call on and pull on 
so that they can give themselves the biggest advantage that they have. Who are the people who will be in their corner corner championing for them? Who are the people who they can ask for help? Who are the people that can help them get an internship? All of those things are still available for free to all young people. Um, you know, libraries are free. Uh, you can get a whole education at a library. And so there are still so many things available to young people of all backgrounds that we need to acknowledge and celebrate. But it's important to have those conversations with kids in the first place, invite them to the table to the discussions that matter around their lives, because soon they're going to be in the driver's seat. They're going to be in charge of their whole life. Um, They're going to be the people who are making decisions that affect all of us as well. So why not give them some of the reins early? Um, not treat them like children and also not approach these conversations from a place of pessimism, but from a place of hope, because there are success stories throughout the world of people who have come from very little and done incredibly amazing things. And that's actually also the, the point of my research is to celebrate a small sample of, of New Yorkers who have beat the odds against them and use those stories as exemplars of hope that it can be done for everyone, especially if we play a collective role. I I love it. I love it. Like that is, you know, that's been just something that's, you know, helped me kind of progress through my life just at, at various stages. Right. And when I finally was able to get sober, like that's one thing that really helped me out was just this kind of hope and this evidence. Right. Like, uh, you know going to a 12-step meeting and seeing, like, just looking around and realizing, like, oh, other people can do this. Oh, people have come from similar situations as me or worse backgrounds as me, and they're succeeding now. They were able to get clean, get sober. They were able to, you know, uh, restart their life and just so many things. And that's kind of what I I use as, you know, motivation, something I try to instill in my son and others and all sorts of stuff. But, but yeah, we have to look at look at these people and then like realize like okay what did they do how did they do it and but also what access did they have to different tools and all these things like as you mentioned you know there's you know mentorship is huge and you know there's libraries and all these other things right but it takes this like kind of collective community to come together and figure these things out and help out and you know that's that's one of the reasons we, you know, we go back and we, we tell others and we, we show them the path that we went down and all of that. Um, but, but yeah, so uh, the older I get and me, you know, uh, just being kind of like a guy who just loves to read books and everything and then realizing how expensive college is and then my son's 12, so we got six more years and all that. But something I'm curious about as we have these conversations about, you know, kids and college and, you know, there's so many different degrees in some fields, you know, where you need licensing and everything, like college is a must. But, you know, we're talking about people who are just at a disadvantage, you know, when it comes to uh, wealth inequality and all that. So with, with like, crippling student loan debt and no real guarantee of you know a career paying you a decent wage even after you you graduate do you think that college is the best option for everyone uh if yes why if not like how can parents and children kind of collaborate work together and figure out what the best option is I think it's only right that we question the idea of college and um, what is it for and who is it for and our goals for it because we are paying such an outrageous sticker price for uh, for something that we expect to have 
um, a solid expected value that, you know, um, we're going to have uh, at least family sustaining uh, jobs and wages come from a college degree. The crazy thing is, is that over the last few decades, a uh, bachelor's degree is like maybe a fallback to um, landing a middle class job. But even then, that's not a guarantee anymore. Um, the, the price of college is incredibly inflated and the returns are not what we would want to see. So, again, I think it makes total sense to be questioning college. And that comes um, from me, who is an academic about to be an assistant professor at a university level. Um, by asking those questions, I think we'll be able to consistently improve the model and give students what they'll actually need to then um, become contributing valuable members of a modern workforce. In my most recent fellowship, where I actually worked at the Labor Market Information Service, um, we, you know, we supported organizations throughout New York harnessing the power of um, uh, real-time and independently collected um, data. A lot of it was labor market data. And I did a lot of projects at the DOE, the Department of Education in New York, specifically working with the CTE, Career and Technical Education branch, um, that are trying out new models in education. These pipeline programs that are K through 12, but potentially K through 14, allowing students to get an associate's degree before they graduate, um, to then decide if they want to go into um, potentially a healthcare or a technology field or continue to their bachelor's. These are the models that I think we need to start bringing back um, and offering for free throughout the country. Uh, we need to flip this idea that vocational education is something to be stigmatized. But no, like working with your hands is something that's going to be necessary uh, now. It was in the past and it will be in the future. That's how, you know, we came up with the COVID vaccine or uh, the brilliant team, not myself included, came up with the COVID vaccine. And so, um, you know, that 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 is an excitement that we need to bring back to education because the old model of just lecture style learning isn't working. Um, I think associate's degrees uh, should also be something that a lot of young people consider throughout the country um, because they can learn real trades. Like an electrician or a plumber can often make a much larger salary than someone who went to a four-year elite liberal arts college uh, and majored in English. And so we really need to offer more um, opportunities to students and let them tinker and figure out what it is that they might want to pursue. That's something that we have to build into is how can students explore more rather than fit this traditional uh, tried and not necessarily true uh, model that we've been using for so long. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Like I, I still think you know, uh, college is is very helpful, very beneficial. Like there are so many things. I was actually just having a conversation with my girlfriend the other day. Like you know, I I write it's this thing that you know I was encouraged uh, to do since I was younger because I had some great English teachers, right? And even when I went to college for that you know whole semester right out of high school, like I was an English major, and you know still to this day there's a lot of just lessons that I've learned. And you know, hell, during my day job, part of it is you know, uh, editing content, you know, and writing. And I, I talk to people who, you know, write and everything like that. But anyways, anyways, I learned this stuff in school and it would have only gotten better, you know, had I gone through college and everything like that. But, you know, there is a financial aspect and, you know, all of this. And like you said, uh, you know, where there there's definitely benefits when you have, you know, certain degrees, you're going to, you know, make more than somebody else and all these other things. And, you know, personally, it's just, it's one of those things that I have to take in consideration and talk to my son about because there's this balance of like, uh, you know, your student loans, and then how much are you going to realistically make in this job and what the possibilities are, and all that. But an education is you know, definitely such a good thing. And I've just kind of gone the route of being a super nerd and just reading all these, you know, books on various topics and things like that on, on my own, you know, and talking to, 
awesome people like yourself, you know? Um, so the next thing is like something I'm, I'm curious uh, about is stereotype threat, right? Like it's, it's very real and they've done, you know, studies and research and all of this. And it's this thing where, you know, we see it becoming this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, whether it's, you know, due to their gender or their race or whatever it is. And they, they fail because of this expectation, you know, based on stereotypes about who they are. So, um, you know, when it comes to stereotype threat, like what are, what are some, you know, solutions? And sometimes I wonder if just educating people about stereotype threat is the answer or if it's like that thing where you say, like, don't think about a white bear, and then that's all they think about. So, you know, uh, is it even, you know, a good thing to teach people about stereotype threat? I'm not, uh, you know, a foremost um, expert on stereotype threat, but I have, you know, colleagues who I know have researched the topic for, for decades, including Josh Aarons, Aronson at NYU and uh, Claude Steele, um, who've, who've done a lot of the premier work around stereotype threat. So I do understand that sometimes students are afraid of fulfilling some kind of expectation that others have of them and sometimes race and class play into this. Um, you know, if students think that, hey, black students aren't achieving in my high school and I'm black, I don't necessarily know if I can go against the grain and be one of the few students that are high achieving. And so that, again, is a, is a social problem that we have to counter is like the expectations we have for all students must be at a high level regardless of um, students' previous experiences or their backgrounds. And in my book, I chronicle basically 50 students who may have been disinterested from education at some point in their lives, but some kind of experience or opportunity or relationship in their lives really spurred a zest for learning and academic and professional um, success, if you will. And so those stories are what, you know, show actionable steps that we can take um, to create that kind of a system for all students. Another thing I would say on this topic is that um, all students have been found to believe in the idea of education. That is to say that their abstract view of education, and this comes from Rosalind Mickelson's um, work in social psychology, um, is that education helps uh, all people uh, get a leg up in the world. However, this is contrasted against their concrete educational values and beliefs, which are mostly reflected in their empirical realities. Did my parents go to college and graduate? Are my friends um, continuing through high school? Or are they dropping out? Are they going to college? Or are they not going to college? Those things affect a student's concrete educational attitude. And often what we find is that students from lower income background, students of color, they have lower concrete educational attitudes, um, but they still have a very high abstract educational attitude, meaning that they believe education works for most people, but they don't necessarily think that it works for them. And so that is, I think, what's at the heart of this matter, that we have to help all students realize that education will work for them, that they can be a lifelong learner, that education doesn't just happen within the four walls of the classroom that they're in, that the teacher is not the sole proprietor of educational material and knowledge, that they can learn uh, basically anywhere they are and whatever they want, that the world is their oyster. And that really requires just a fundamental belief in our young people and treating them with respect. And then when you do that and you add a little bit of fun to the mix, I think um, opportunities and possibilities are endless. And so that is fundamentally how I think of education. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 
optimist as far as education because there are people and groups who are getting it right despite a lot of challenges and those are what we need to be learning from and that's what I try to do in my book that's kind of what I try to do in my scholarship um, and I think it really requires an all hands on deck approach um, and realizing it's not a zero sum game if my neighbor's kid is a valedictorian that is not detracting my, my child's ability to become a valedictorian. If anything, they can work together to create a better version of the future that they want. And uh, economics shows that higher educated communities bounce back quicker from things like recessions, are able to tackle social problems like climate change or a pandemic better. And so that's what's at stake. We must try to educate uh, all children, including the children of other people, um, for us to have a better shot at creating a better future. And so, you know, it's a high charge, um, but it's one that is worth it. Um, it's one that we will all benefit from, and it's one that will make the world a better place. See, and that that is exactly why I love talking with people like you. Like, I, I need, you know, that optimism, but, you know, I, I couldn't agree more, you know. And it's interesting that, you you know, you bring up, uh, you know, the, the kind of, how we view education and I was kind of reflecting on my own you know what I mean uh like my mom she has uh, a PhD and she's she's also in recovery she got sober when I was about 20 but she got a PhD while being a full-blown alcoholic and stuff like that and that you know um uh along with my grandma you know being big on like education and she, you know she was a teacher my mom uh taught college for a little while and all that but uh, I've known that education is a big thing and I've just kind of you know done my own kind of learning and all that and something I'm trying to teach my own son even though he doesn't come from one of these dis this is like super disadvantaged like uh communities is to just stay curious enjoy education always learning and stuff like that but um I've gone and spoken at you know a friend's high school and things like that and try to you know implement those those things because yeah I think uh, you, you put it very well too it's not this zero sum game either where if some other kid succeeds it's going to take away from your kid or you know whatever um, but yeah so so to kind of lead into my final question for you and yeah with this part like I know you cover it in your book extremely well and everybody's going to go grab a copy as soon as this episode's done but in the book, you do this fantastic job breaking down what parents, teachers, and communities can do. And as parents, we often feel like we have limited control over the education of our children. Like if, if we're lower income, our children go to worse schools and live in worse neighborhoods. Even if we get involved, there's no guarantee that change will happen, right? For example, here in Las Vegas, and uh, you know, Nevada voted to legalize marijuana in 2016. And Nevada also ranks extremely low in education. And this has been going on since I was a kid. We were told that a majority of the tax revenue would go towards education, right? From passing this marijuana bill. And, you know, change would happen to the schools and all that stuff. And it's, it's I don't know, five years later and nothing has happened. Schools aren't getting, like, extra funding or anything like that. So, anyways... Here's my question for you, my last and final question. For any parent, teacher, or community member who cares about this and they want to go out and they want to do something, what are some actionable steps that we can take to foster more student agency despite some of these bigger challenges that we face? So, so of course, you know, um, 
despite all the limits there are in, in education, we should be always thinking of education as also a place to cultivate agency as being um, at potential. And I think what we have to do is um, succeed despite the system, despite the systemic level issues that penetrate education that you mentioned. Um, what that looks like is collaboration uh, across groups, parents, um, teachers, schools, community um, board members, community organizations coming together to kind of uh, promote more of a community-based model of education. Um, in New York, uh, in the conclusion of my book, one of the schools I talk about to show what what is it like when this is actually happening is Medgar Evers College Prep in Brooklyn. I take my NYU undergrads there um, so they can see vibrant education. And, and you know, on, on face value, Medgar Evers is a school that maybe should not be succeeding at the level that their students are. 99% of the students are uh, students of color. Um, most all students qualify, if not all, um, for free and reduced lunch. It's a Title I school. Um, and But but the uh, on the flip side, the, the students are all going to college and going to the colleges of their, of their dreams, uh, largely on scholarships. And so how does this happen? Well, it takes a community. Medgar Evers College Prep is not too far from Medgar Evers College. And uh, mentors from the college come to the high school to offer um, programming like magazine making, um, studio music development, things where the students can actually, the high school students can relate to the mentors um, and see themselves in these various trades and crafts while also learning strong academics. Uh, AP classes are offered as early as ninth grade. Um, students are able to take regents um, exams by the time they get to high school, which is really um, setting a, a bar of high expectations for these students. Um, and so there's even classes like uh, AP uh, Chinese, and a lot of the students really find that um, exciting and rewarding. And so I think what it really comes down to is being able to offer students vibrant curriculum, but also understanding where the students come from and meeting them uh, where they are while respecting their background. That, to me, is the ideal version of education. It's not easy to achieve. Uh, the principal currently, Dr. Michael Wiltshire, when he came in uh, to the role, the school was failing, um, maybe lower than a 50% graduation rate. And it took about a decade to turn around. He stated this vision to his staff when he first came in that, you know, we're going to extend the school day. We're going to offer adult education classes for the parents. We're going to offer holistic supports. And a lot of the staff didn't really um, accord with that view. You know, it sounded like they would have to go work even harder on top of what they were already doing. And so a lot of staff left. But what remained was a unified teaching force and new teachers that came into the school uh, definitely uh, believed in that vision. And so that's what it takes. It takes this collective responsibility. It takes a no excuses mindset, if you will. And it takes um, warmly demanding mentors um, who expect the best from their students and th therefore get it. And also a lot of things like representation matter across the board. Um, minority teachers and teachers who are males um, also help students see themselves in a variety of academic and professional um, positions. And so the school also addresses cultural competency from this kind of um, ground-up approach. And so... You know, I chronicle that, that school in my conclusion, as well as a couple others that are doing this kind of work and going above and beyond. And honestly, most of this stuff is not super expensive to implement. A lot of the approaches and mindsets are free to implement, but it requires us to challenge ourselves to think that giftedness takes many different shapes and forms um, and that we can find giftedness 
um, in all students if we look to respect their background and their interests. You know, as far as actionable steps that can be taken to help level the playing field, some other things that I would recommend are very important are helping students develop both um, the personal aptitude and character traits that are required for them to succeed, you know, that's where the grit comes into play, but also helping them understand that the social matters, the institutional and the cultural will also help them succeed. And so for helping students um, develop mindsets and character to achieve, um, I think what's really important is that they have uh, role models who they can relate to, um, cultural competent role models who students can kind of see themselves in. Um, also having students maybe from higher level grades come teach younger students. Those kinds of things go a long way in helping students see that academics are and can be for them. Um, and socially, I would say what's really important is, you know, again, looking for hidden forms of giftedness that may not be manifested um, extremely outwardly. You know, that requires us to challenge our notions of what success looks like. Like if a student is fidgety in class, maybe it doesn't mean that they're not interested in the material, but maybe they didn't necessarily have a very nutritious breakfast, if a breakfast at all. And so how can we, con uh, how can we like work against uh, and counter some of our deeply rooted um, just fundamental beliefs and expectations, I think, are really at the heart of this work. Um, and, and offering students different opportunities, again, to form uh, the character and the network that they need, help, help students find opportunities to volunteer. Even if students come from disadvantaged backgrounds, volunteering helps them see um, kind of uh, the perspective or um, helps them understand where they are in kind of the social world. They'll also understand that there's um, little things that they can do to create a positive change in their life and the lives of others. And so that's how they'll feel empowered um, to really put forth their best foot. Helping students also think about their mental health. This is a new topic that, um, you know, it's not a new topic, but we're finally giving mental health and wellness the attention it deserves and destigmatizing those topics, allowing students resources to have uh, so they can vent about their problems, so they can develop positive uh, lifestyle habits is incredibly important. And then finally, allowing students to try new things. You know, if we can offer them enrichment programs, we should do that. But allowing them to also try different kinds of academic material, you know, connecting Shakespeare to rap lyrics, things like that have really opened up students' eyes and perceptions of what education can do for their lives. And that's what we really should bring to the table when we're thinking about creating an educational system that students are excited to partake in. That was awesome. So thank you so much, Anindya, for taking some time. Uh, again, you know, uh, as a new father, it's it's I, I appreciate it that you came on to talk about your book, The Power of Student Agency. And yeah, for everybody listening, I, I really hope you enjoyed that episode and it kind of inspired and or motivated you, you know, uh, about what we could do it to help kids you know uh in our communities or just different parts of our town or you know wherever it is like anindo's book provides real solutions and we got to kind of educate ourselves like we don't we we can't tackle any problem for unaware of it and it's better if we kind of understand it and why it's happening and we didn't even get to dive into all the research that he's done uh in this episode so make sure make sure that you head down to the description below make sure you're following anindya over on 
Twitter and grab a copy of his book, The Power of Student Agency, or, or, or buy two copies. Buy one for yourself, then give one to a parent you know, or give one to a teacher. If you got a kid in school, be like, hey, you're a great teacher, but I think this book would make it even better, right? Do something like that. Rant about it at like PTA meetings. I don't know, I don't know, but we need more people interested, you know, in, uh, you know, our, our young people succeeding to read this book and understand the importance of student agency. And Grit's a great book, too. And I think there's a lot, a lot to learn for it. But kind of like we talked about in this episode, they kind of work in conjunction. So check out the description down below. Follow Ninja, grab a copy of the book. And while you're down there, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. Um, I have another episode tomorrow kind of continuing on social issues. This one isn't going to be about education and schools. Tomorrow's is about unemployment. All right. There are massive issues about it that I was I, you know, didn't even know about, even though I've been unemployed a million times. That was back in my addiction days. Now I'm a good hard worker and the economy hasn't been you know, super terrible in my specific industry. But anyways, I, I talked tomorrow with Sarah Damaski about unemployment in her new book and also how it affects women differently than it affects men. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you never miss an episode. All right. And if you're new to the podcast, make sure you're following it or subscribe if you're on Apple or Spotify. And if you're on Apple, take two seconds rate it, review it, all this stuff, you know, uh, share this episode with other people on social media, all of this stuff. It helps with the algorithms and tells the platforms like, yo, this is a pretty, pretty decent podcast and we want to send it to some other people. So I would appreciate if you took a couple seconds to, you know, share it or rate it, review it, all that stuff. And if you would so like to support the podcast in any ways, there's more uh, links down below. Uh, you can become a patron. You can get some of the books that I've written on mental health and well-being. They're over at therewiresoul.com. And speaking of one of the things that I found really important about being a parent and being, you know, just interacting with anybody, not just my son, is taking care of my mental health. So there's also a link down below. It's an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. So a little bit comes back to support the podcast and you get affordable online therapy that you could do from home. You work with a licensed therapist and it's pretty awesome. So check that out. All right. Anyways, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode and stay tuned because we have another great conversation about an awesome book coming tomorrow. So have an great, great, great rest of your day.